You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Here and it's a great pleasure to be back with you this morning. Last week I was away riding around Alpine Victoria, and so I uh, thank you for many people who are praying for me. Uh, I feel like I've made a miraculous recovery. Uh, on Tuesday, I was beat to the shops by an 80 year old with a walking stick, and so God has done miraculous things. I was scrolling on Facebook this week and I came across this meme. Uh, which will come up in a second when this connects with the computer. There we go. Back. There we go. It worked. When you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher wall. And I thought, oh, that's that's profound. That's that's quite good. Because I've been reflecting lately on the cultural moment that we've been having. Because it feels like We're quite comfortable as Australians. We're not particularly worried at the moment, or at least many of us in our congregation aren't worried about where the next meal is coming from, about where our water is coming from, whether there'll be a roof over our heads. We're comfortable, and yet it feels like we're more divided than at any point in my life. Now, admittedly, not a very long life so far, 31 years, and so uh, I've been thinking about, well, this, this this maybe is one of the antidotes. Maybe this is one of the answers that... We just need to build bigger tables, longer tables, invite people over for a meal. And then I started thinking about the way that Australians treat our houses. See, we don't have homes, we have castles. In the last 30 years, you'll have noticed that our lawns have got smaller, that our houses have got bigger, and our fences have got higher. We don't have homes, we have castles. As The famous 1997 classic, The Castle, once said, Daryl Kerrigan, a man's home is his castle. But the thing about castles are, is that they're defensive. They're designed to only let in who you want to let in and to keep out everybody else. And that's kind of what we do. We invite people around who look like us, think like us, believe like us, belong to the same culture as us, and belong to the same class as us, by and large. But not Jesus. Jesus seems to have a different kind of strategy. I don't know if you picked up yet. It's been very interesting that in the book of Luke so far, it's centered around Jesus eating, going to, at a meal, or coming from He basically never hosts a meal. He's only ever at other people's homes. It seems like Jesus accepts every invitation that comes his way. He eats with his friends. He eats with his family. He eats with strangers and he eats with his enemies. Now, it very well may be that Jesus is just a hungry bloke, right? He's been walking from town to town. He's like, please will someone feed me? But I think he's also saying something about his kingdom. He's saying something about who's invited to the table, who he's willing to eat with. Now, at the center of the story this morning is yet another meal, and yet there's actually two meals going on. There's the meal of the Pharisee, the one that Jesus attends, the one that's front and foremost. But behind the scenes, there's also 
this unspoken meal of Jesus, the meal of the King, the meal of the Lamb. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to contrast and compare the two so that not only may we participate in his meal, but that we might invite others, that our meals might look like his. And so Jesus has three very distinct, very firm challenges for the Pharisees. First, at the meal of the Pharisees, he challenges their idea of what faithfulness and obedience to God looks like. Then he challenges the guests on what pride and humility looks like in the kingdom of God. And finally, he challenges the host of the meal about who is invited to the table. Well, let's dive in. From verse 1, chapter 14. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal, they were watching him closely. And just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. And I think the most interesting thing about this is in the first verse where it says they were watching him closely. This is a trap. They have set a trap for Jesus and they're trying to show him up as a lawbreaker. You see, this was a meal on the Sabbath and the Sabbath was a day of rest. It's not the kind of day of rest that we have where we get all our mowing and mopping done. This was a proper day of rest. They actually had a list of all the things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath that constituted work. And healing was work. And so they've obviously brought this man who had dropsy, which is an inflammation of the arms and legs, a swelling that indicates a, a bad heart. And they brought him to the meal to trap Jesus because Jesus has compassion. He'll heal the man and they're able to say, well, you don't need to pay any attention to that man. He's a lawbreaker. And what Jesus does instead is ask a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, now they're in a conundrum. Because if they say yes, well, they're just as bad as Jesus. And if they say no, they're heartless. So they stay silent. And Jesus doubles up. And then he asks them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? And the unspoken answer is, of course, if a child falls into a well, you get them out. If one of your animals that you depend on for your livelihood falls down, you pull it out. But they also know that that's work. See, what Jesus does is expose them that for the sake of an animal, they would break the Sabbath, but for the sake of this man, they would not. He's exposed their hypocrisy that even though they follow all these rules, they're far from the heart of God. At this meal, there's no restoration until Jesus turns up on the scene. There's no healing in the meal of the Pharisee, but in the meal of Jesus, there is restoration. And he goes on to challenge the guests. Jesus is on a roll now. 
He says, when he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In Middle Eastern culture at the time, the way that things worked is that the closer to the host you sat, the more honorable you were. And so it was sort of like if you've ever seen a line of teenagers trying to work out who's tallest to smallest and the posturing and peacocking that goes on, it's the same kind of thing. Everyone's trying to work out where they sit in the pecking order. They're trying to work out, am I more honorable than you? Let me, Joe, am I more honorable than you? Let's work this out. No, there you go. Right? We've worked it out. Joe's going to sit closer to the host. And Jesus comes along and says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's something different about the meal of Jesus. Humility wasn't really a thing until Jesus turns up on the scene. Historians tell us that humility was almost seen as a vice, something bad. You are expected to put yourself out there, put yourself forward. Jesus comes up and turns everything upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. It's Jesus who exposes the inadequacy of seeking your own honor. I think sometimes we have a, a wrong view of humility that's thinking less of yourself, that it's thinking down on yourself. And so those who are often quick to criticize themselves are seen as humble, but actually it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis once put it. It's thinking of yourself less so that you can start thinking of others. The historian John Dixon has a story that I think illustrates it well. There was in Detroit in the 1930s and uh, three young men got on a bus and noticed at the back there was another young man there and they started to pick on him. They wanted to pick a fight. And so they started insulting him and the man said nothing. And they, they ramped up the insults. The insults got more heated and more personal and the man said nothing. Well, eventually the bus got to this man's Stop, and he got up, and they, they noticed, well, actually, this man is a bit taller than we thought, and he's a bit broader than we thought, and a bit more muscular than we thought. And as he walks off the bus, he hands them a little note, his job uh, card, and says three words, Joe Lewis, boxer. The man was Joe Lewis, who the International Boxing Research Foundation has as the number one heavyweight of all time in front of Muhammad Ali. From 1937 to 1949, he was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He could have ended their life. But he didn't. 
He actually cared for them by not rising to their insults. That is true humility. It's putting down what you think you are owed or your honour in order to care for others. What does it say that Jesus values humility so much? That Jesus doesn't want us to be jostling for position in the kingdom of God. See, we can do that in the church, can't we? See, we have our own rules. We have our own laws that we want to, uh, that we want to live up to. And they're not the spoken laws of God. They're the unspoken ones. It's we wear our Sunday best when we go to church and we sit in the same kinds of places and we definitely don't raise our hands or dance down the aisles because we're Anglicans. We're not Baptists. Right? We have all these unspoken rules about what it means to be a part of the church, this church. But the only place that a focus on rule keeping will lead you is to self-righteousness and self-importance. To thinking that how much better I, than, am I than, than that person who doesn't follow these rules, who doesn't do the right things, who doesn't say the right things, who doesn't look the right way. That's not the way of Jesus. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this actually leads to Jesus' biggest critique of the Pharisees. See, this is what he says from verses 12 to 24. He said to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you will be repaid. No, what you should do is give a banquet and invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said this to him. Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were there who were invited will taste my dinner. It's the thing about building a longer table, isn't it? That you can have a table as long as you want, but if you keep inviting the same kinds of people, it doesn't really change things. You can have a table as big as you want, but if you keep inviting people who look like you, think like you, believe like you, belong to the same culture as you or the same class as you, it doesn't really accomplish anything. That's the meal of the Pharisees, isn't it? There's this big meal, this sumptuous meal, this feast, and yet who's there? The religious leaders are there. 
the important people are there, the influential people are there, but who's not? Who's been left out of their meal? The blind, the crippled, the poor, the lame. Anyone who actually really needs help has been left out. See, most Jewish religious leaders at the time, based on an interpretation of Leviticus 21, said that if you were blind or crippled or poor, you actually couldn't make a sacrifice at the temple. And another sect, uh, similar to the Pharisees called the Essenes, believed that if you were poor or blind or lame or crippled, you would not be welcome at the feast of the Messiah. You would not be welcome at the supper feast, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And yet, in Jesus' meal, they're the only ones there. You think he might be trying to make a point here? You think he might be trying to challenge them on the interpretation of who's welcome in the kingdom of God here? I think so. Because the interesting thing is there, everyone else has excuses. And to be honest with you, they're the kind of excuses that seem reasonable at first. Someone has to go buy some land. Well, fair enough. You're busy with your wife. Understandable. I've got to go buy a yoke of oxen. I don't even know how big a yoke of oxen is, but I imagine it's more than one. Right? You've got stuff to do. You've got places to be. But actually, the excuses are insulting if you look at it for more than a second. As uh, Tim Chester points out in his book, Meals with Jesus, that... In the Middle Eastern culture, a double invitation was the norm. That a, day, a couple of days before the banquet, you'd send out an invitation and say, Joe, will you come to my meal? Chris, will you come to my meal? And the invitation would come back, of course, yes, Jimmy, I'll come to your meal. And then a couple of days later, you'd say, come, the meal is ready. You'd already checked with them that they were coming, and the double invitation had come out to say, it's ready, come, eat. And so it doesn't really add up their excuses, does it? Who buys a piece of land without first viewing it? No one does. Who buys five yoke of oxen without first seeing them and seeing how they work? No one does. And guess what? If you've just got married, you were probably just married two days ago when I asked you to come. It's probably not a surprise to you. The excuses are insulting. That's why the host gets so angry. You can almost feel the assumption on their lips. One of the guests says, blessed is anyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God, with the assumption being, I know I'll be there. But I think Jesus is very clear. The invitation has gone out and your priorities have been laid bare. Not only have you rejected my invitation, you will not eat my dinner. And I think there's at least a couple of takeaways for us here in this upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom of Jesus. What does it look like for us who want to follow Jesus and want to make our lives about Jesus? Well, first and foremost, don't make excuses with Jesus. Don't make excuses with Jesus. Just think about
about the Pharisees for a moment. The Pharisees were incredibly smart, well-off religious leaders who were schooled in the text of the Old Testament from basically birth. They knew more than you do. They know more than I and Sam do. They went to more services than we do. They seemed more obedient to their interpretations of the laws than we are. If you are basing your salvation on law-keeping or, law, or knowledge of what God is like, it won't save you. Don't make excuses with Jesus. Because the truth is that grace, Jesus has so much grace for you. And his forgiveness is infinite, but the time, the clock is ticking. There will come a day when Jesus says the invitation has come out and the invitation has been refused. You will not eat at my dinner. Now some of us have been raised in the church. Some of us know what it means to follow Jesus. But we're playing games. Because that's the truth of the Pharisees, isn't it? It's not that they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't know what the, the Messianic banquet would look like. They didn't know what the Messiah would look like. They just got distracted by other priorities. They made other idols, other things that they made as most important in their lives. They made excuses. Don't make excuses. The only thing that will save you is not your church attendance. It's not your knowledge of the Bible. It's not your obedience to the rules. No matter how good those things are, the only thing that will save you is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Don't make excuses. Don't play games with him. But the second takeaway is that meals really matter. Just compare and contrast the two meals on display for a second. Think about the meal of the Pharisees. On the surface, it looks like a great meal. People are coming. There's a good vibe. There's food to be had. And yet at the meal of the Pharisees, there's no healing to be found. Everyone's jostling and jockeying for position. Everyone's trying to get their right desserts. Everyone's trying to look good. The poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind are kept from the table. It's not a good meal at all. It's a woeful description of what the kingdom looks like. But the question really should be for all of us, who isn't at your table? Who isn't at your house? Who doesn't get an invite? Who is kept out of your life? Our meals matter. Now let me be very clear. We've, we've been talking about meals over and over and over again. and You could very well think that, well, it's meals that save us. It's not meals that save us. The gospel saves us. It's that meals are a beautiful depiction of what the gospel looks like. They're beautiful opportunities to share what Jesus is really like. It's because hospitality, hospitality is an insight into what we think the kingdom is like. Because if you've been invited to a meal with Jesus, it changes how you have meals with everybody else. So who's invited to your table? Is it people who look like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you? Is it people far from God? 
Is it the unlikely people, the uninfluential people, the poor people, not the people who will get you the better position at work? Who gets invited to your table? Who gets a taste of the kingdom? That's the challenge Jesus leaves us with. Meals matter. And so this week, particularly this week, have a think who gets a seat at your table. Because it doesn't matter how big the table is. It matters who we're inviting and who we're talking about. So I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray specifically that we would not make excuses with God, but that our invitation to His meal changes how we have meals with everyone. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this story and we thank you for the challenge. Too often we are like the Pharisees, concerned about honour, concerned about our place, concerned about looking good, not concerned about healing, not concerned about those not present, not concerned about faithfulness to you, but concerned about what we can get. God, convict us and bring us low. For all the times that we've exalted ourselves, humble us, show us the errors of our way. But God, I pray that we would taste and see that the Lord is good, that the Lord's meal is good, that Jesus' meal is good. May we get a hunger and a thirst for Jesus that shapes not only how we have our meals, but how we do everything that we don't hunger and thirst after idols, that we don't hunger and thirst after status, but we hunger and thirst for the kingdom of God and are satisfied with no other fare. Spirit, we need your help. So fill us. Make us more like Jesus. Make us obedient to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.